we begin this evening a new series of Lord's Supper messages that I've had on my heart for at least a year, I guess. I guess I've been chewing on this for a year to the degree that I actually uh, purchased a, a book many, many months ago, probably a year ago or so, and have been collecting material. Uh, just now, though, have sensed uh, a real... Uh, uh, motivation, a prompting, a, a burden to begin this series. Uh, I don't uh, believe I've ever, um, uh, I know I've never preached this series before, and I don't believe I've ever preached a message that I can recall on the subject of the furniture in the tabernacle or the temple. And so I've been prompted to study uh, this and to share this. And so this evening, we um, begin a, um, not a real lengthy, but a, a number of part uh, series of Lord's Supper messages about the specifics and the significance of the furnishings of God's house. Furnishing God's house. And uh, this evening, an introductory message that I've titled, The Missing Peace. Now, aren't you intrigued by that? I asked in the office uh, this week if uh, any of the office workers could identify what the missing piece of furniture is, the glaringly missing piece of furniture in the tabernacle in the temple. And uh, we kind of did a, did, took a poll on that. And uh, maybe you already have an idea of that, but we'll get to that in just a minute. If you make your way to the book of Exodus, the first thing I want us to consider, jumping right into this Lord's Supper message, is the background of the buildings. And I say buildings plural, because in the Old Testament, God's house actually consisted of three different structures. Well, kind of two different structures, but one of them was demolished and then rebuilt. And so I say three uh, different structures because they were constructed at three different times. And the furnishings, that is the furniture in those three structures are very significant because each piece of the furniture and each item that was uh, located in these buildings uh, detail and identify a particular aspect of the person and work of Christ. In other words, they are typological. They are types of Christ and he's the antitype or the fulfillment of the type. And so whenever we uh, study uh, the tabernacle or the temple, it's very important in the Old Testament, it's very important that we understand much of the fulfillment is recorded and is identified in what book in the New Testament? The book of Hebrews. A couple of you said Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. And so whenever you have that in, in, um, in view, be considering the book of Hebrews to identify the fulfillment. Let's look at the background of the buildings, the particular buildings. The first building, of course, was the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle in the wilderness. And we look at Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And this is really going to be the only uh, real lengthy text that we're going to consider because this is going to be a, a machine gun type of a message. Just going to give you uh, lots and lots of information because this is introductory. And then over the next few Lord's Supper messages, we're going to deal with the, um, the minutia of these particular pieces of furniture. But tonight, by way of introduction, we're just going to do kind of a, a quick uh, a smattering of, of all of the tabernacle and the temple. Exodus 25, and the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and bronze and, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, and goat's hair and ram skins and dyed red and badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing uh, oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell uh, among them. 
That's the key verse. Verse eight, let them make me or I'm commanding them to make me a dwelling place, a sanctuary, an abode, a house that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of the furnishings thereof, even so shall you make it. So the tabernacle was the primary uh, focal point in the Old Testament, once it was constructed, and it was the center of religious life or spiritual life. Of course, it's where the sacrifices were brought. Of course, it's where really uh, all of the camps, all of the 12 tribes encamped around the tabernacle. And so it being right in the center was a very active place of life. And we're going to consider the tabernacle primarily in uh, this series about the furniture. The tabernacle, as you know, wasn't in Egypt, uh, which would have been a picture of bondage. The tabernacle was not in the promised land. And at least it didn't initially begin there, uh, which would have been a picture of actually in heaven. The tabernacle, though, began in the wilderness. This is what is going on here. This is the wilderness wanderings of Moses and the two million or so who were in the wilderness. And being in the wilderness uh, pictures is is a is a type or as an illustration of living out the struggles of a redeemed life. In other words, yes, they're redeemed. They're set free from Egypt, just like you have been redeemed and you've been set free, but that doesn't mean that you're in heaven yet. You're not actually experiencing all of the freedom, all of the liberty, which shall come unto uh, uh, the children of redemption, as Acts, or as uh, Romans chapter 8 describes. That's what's going on here. Uh, they are struggling out this life of redemption in the wilderness. They're not in bondage, but they're not yet in the promised land. And as followers of Christ, we're out of bondage to sin and death, but we're still um, eking out this existence where it's what uh, scripture says, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we've not fully received all that we're going to receive. And so the, the tabernacle in the wilderness is a very good picture of what our lives are to be about and what in fact they are about um, in these days. The tabernacle, a very critically important plan and picture of God's, I should say it's a picture of God's redemptive plan. It's so important that 50 chapters, no less than 50 chapters in God's word is devoted to the construction, to the preparation, to the uh, the ministry of the tabernacle. 13 chapters in Exodus, 18 chapters in Leviticus, 13 chapters in Numbers, two chapters in Deuteronomy, four chapters in Hebrews, all have the tabernacle in view in great detail. The tabernacle seems to have a twofold purpose. First of all, it allowed God's people to be physically represented uh, or allowed God to be physically represented and present through his glory, which indwelt the temple. And it also allowed the people to have access uh, to, as it were, the throne of God, to the mercy of God and to bring sacrifices. Stephen Olford described the purpose of the tabernacle as God's appearance to man in grace. Think about this. I don't think I had that uh, uh, down in in the overhead. I wish I would have put that because I'd like you to, to have that, but I don't have that. Stephen Olford said, the tabernacle is this, God's appearance to man in grace and man's approach to God in faith. That's the tabernacle in a nutshell. That's the summary of the tabernacle. It is God's presence to man and man's um, approach to God in faith. M.R.D. Hahn wrote, there is no portion of scripture richer in meaning or more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption than this divinely designed building. Did you hear that? No less than a scholar like M.R.D. Hahn said, there isn't any portion of scripture which has richer meaning 
and more perfect teaching about redemption than a study of the tabernacle. And that's pretty weighty uh, commentary right there. Pretty significant uh, thing that we understand all about God's house and the furnishing. So the first place was Moses' tabernacle. Secondly, we see as time went on and as they entered into the promised land, we see Solomon's uh, pre-exilic temple. That is before the exile, before they were carried away into exile, first by, um, um, first by the uh, Assyrians and then later uh, Jerusalem and Judah by the Babylonians uh, a few hundred years after the tabernacle was first constructed. And so by the time of King David, the, um, the tabernacle had become very chaotic due to various wars and the Philistines invading and, and the people compromising and them going off into idolatry and, and all kinds of other things that were going on. Part of the contents of the tabernacle, mostly um, the Ark of the Covenant, were at or near Jerusalem, whereas other pieces of the tabernacle were in another location uh, in uh, Gibeon, a number of miles away. And so there was haphazardness. There was disorder when it came, came to tabernacle worship. David wanted to put something in order. And so we see in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15, an unfulfilled desire of David. You don't need to turn to it. I'll summarize it in first Chronicles 17 verses one through 15. Um, uh, it, uh, David expresses in prayer to God that he wants to build him a house. Uh, let me do this. Let me make a stable construction, something that's permanent, something that's going to be right in the center of worship in Jerusalem. I want to build a temple. David's heart likely was very genuine at that time, but God said, no, David, you're not going to do that. You are not going to be the one because you have um, blood on your hands and because you have uh, been haughty, you've been prideful, namely the renumbering of the people and the sin with Bathsheba. God says, you're not going to be the one who is going to be, uh, 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 have the blessing of building the temple. Now, folks, we need to understand, I don't believe, I don't, I'm not at all convinced that God punishes his children. God doesn't punish his children. Punishment takes where, uh, took place where? The punishment for sin took place at the cross. He doesn't punish his children. But just like a loving parent, God will withhold a blessing or he will uh, allow uh, his children maybe to experience leanness of soul. That's not the same as punishment. God was not trying to get back at David. God was just simply showing him um, in a disciplining way. My ways are holy and you have not walked in holiness. So, so therefore I'm withholding a blessing from you. That's altogether different than punishment. If David were punished for his sins, he would be dead and in hell, just like any of us were who, who were punished for sin. But David was was uh, one who experienced mercy. God just withheld that blessing, the fullness of his blessing. And so David had that unfulfilled desire. It was passed on to Solomon. And the unfailing duty of Solomon is what we see that took place. And if you look at Second Chronicles, look at Second Chronicles. You've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Everybody look at... Um, at uh, Second Chronicles, I don't know if I said Second Chronicles. Look at Second Chronicles, chapter one, and look at the heart of Solomon. Second Chronicles, chapter one. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Look at Second Chronicles, chapter one, and look at the heart of Solomon regarding the temple and regarding his life. Chapter one, beginning in verse seven. 
In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. What promise was that? The promise that Solomon, David's son, would build the temple. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people who are so great? Continuing on up to through verse 12. And God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart and thou hast not asked for riches and wealth and honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither hast thou asked long life, but thou hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted unto thee and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had that uh, have been before thee, neither shall there be any after thee um, have the like. In other words, God says, I'm going to shower you with blessing because of your heart attitude. What did that do in the life of Solomon? It certainly didn't cause him to be puffed up. Look in chapter two of second Chronicles and verse four, chapter two and verse four. Behold, I'll build a house to the name of the Lord, my God, to dedicate it to him and to burn before him sweet incense and for the continual showbread for the burnt offering morning and evening on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, on the solemn feasts of the Lord, our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the house which I build is great for great is our God above all gods. But who is able to build a house seeing the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house except only to burn sacrifice unto him? Who am I? Solomon says, I can't do this. If heaven can't contain God, what in the world can I possibly do but to offer sacrifice, to bring worship, to draw God's people to worship? I'll do that. He's worthy of that. He's a great God and he is worthy of all adoration. Solomon says, I'll do that. And so we see Solomon's temple then throughout the the next couple, three chapters was built and was dedicated and it was magnificent. It was glorious. It, it, the splendor of Solomon's temple um, was, uh, was really unrivaled in that day. The third building, and again, we're just on point A, having an overview of these buildings. The third building that we find, and really it's the second building restored, and it's Zerubbabel's post-exilic temple. Let's all say Zerubbabel together. Here we go. Ready? Zerubbabel. <laughs> none, of you chill, none of you people named your, chi- your son Zerubbabel. I'm, you know, it's a little, little odd that all the biblical names, none of us have uh, chosen Zerubbabel as a, as a child's name, but uh, whatever. The book of Ezra talks about that. And Zerubbabel, along with Ezra and Nehemiah, are the ones who led tens of thousands of Jews back to Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity, of course, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish worship, to rebuild the walls. And we see that all in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. It's not the purpose of this series uh, to uh, deal with the reconstruction of the temple structure itself or the the walls, but we're going to deal instead with the furniture. So that's an overview, the background of the buildings. Now let's get into the actual furniture itself. An, An overview of the furniture. And I say an overview because Lord willing, I'm going to spend a message on each piece of the furniture in coming months so that we can really look at the significance of um, the various aspects. Uh, I'm not going to um, give a whole lot of attention to the gate. You can see here that the, uh, the, uh, the tabernacle area 
was encircled by a gate about half the size of a football field. If you're trying to get kind of some kind of a proportion, this enclosed area is about half of a football field, roughly. Um, but instead, we're going to deal with the, the actual furniture of the building. And there are three particular locations in the tabernacle area. And first of all, we see uh, in Scripture that the outer court, the outer court, um, I said uh, this was about half the size of the football field. That's not accurate. It's actually this area that's more about half the size of the football field, the outer court. Um, uh, that was the area that uh, it was surrounded by the fence. The fence was seven and a half feet high, and it contained two very important pieces of furniture. It contained, first of all, the brazen altar. The brazen altar right here where I'm pointing to uh, is a place. It's, a, uh, it's just a good size, um, for lack of a better term, and I don't, I don't mean to be irreverent, but a barbecue pit is what it was. It was an area where sacrifices were laid and they were burned, and then the, the smoke uh, rose up. And, and, and of course, during the, the time of, um, of Passover and, uh, and certain other festivals, it would just be roaring all the time that there would be uh, offerings brought to the altar. And then we see in the outer court, there's the brazen laver. And that is the ceremonial washing place for those who ministered in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. We'll be getting more into that as that particular message comes up. The next part we see is the inner court. <clears throat> and the inner court is this particular area right here. Now the inner court is about 30 feet um, long by 15 feet wide. So it's kind of a rectangle, but not particularly large. I would guess it's not much larger than this part of the platform right here. Maybe not even, I would say maybe from the piano down to um, about right down here or so is roughly 30 feet or so, and maybe we're, we're 15 feet deep. So we're not talking about a large area at all. And the inner court, known as the holy place, contained three particular uh, pieces of furniture. The first piece of furniture that it contained was the golden candlestick. And you can, um, you can see that maybe right in there, that go the golden candlestick. Of course, that was the primary source of light. And I mean, the, the candles probably very likely were not just like uh, what we have. They probably were more like torches uh, by way of comparison in size. Likely, the flames were not like this. They were uh, pretty good-sized flames uh, in all likelihood. And then we see after that, or next to that, is the table of showbread right here. You can see that. And there were 12 loaves of bread that were positioned on that uh, always, continually. And every uh, uh, Sabbath, uh, the, the bread was made on Friday. And then on Sabbath, uh, new loaves of bread were put in place of those. And the, uh, those who ministered in the temple uh, consumed or took home for, for, for food uh, the loaves that had been there for a week. Not real sure exactly uh, how that all played out, but apparently um, it was able to be preserved and, uh, and it uh, was acceptable. And then there is the altar of incense right up against the, the, the back wall of the inner court. And before you get into the Holy of Holies, the altar of incense, where in fact um, incense was continually burning. And so you see that worship in the tabernacle and in the temple was filled with sights. It was filled with sounds. It was filled with scents. That is, there were various aromas that were always coming from the, from the offering being burnt. Either it was an animal or it was a grain offering uh, from the incense that was uh, being burnt. Maybe from the new loaves of bread that were placed on the table of showbread. All kinds of aromas that were always a part of tabernacle worship. 
And then we continue on with an overview of the temple and we go into the Holy of Holies. Now that is uh, right inside of here. And that was 15 foot square. So you're talking uh, here to here and that deep. That is about as large as it was. Of course, you know that the Holy of Holies is the place that the high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement. A very unused, as far as uh, very uh, often, very uh, slightly used place. It just was not utilized. You didn't go back in there unless you were one particular man at one particular time of year to do one particular job. And in the Holy of Holies, uh, first of all, separating, and it's not really a piece of furniture, but I went ahead and included it in, in this study because of how significant it is, is the, the veil of separation, that heavy, uh, thick, uh, fabric, which, uh, which was like a curtain that was separating the most holy, the holy of holies from the inner court. And then also there is the Ark of the Covenant. And that is a box, as it were, a golden uh, container that contained um, uh, Aaron's rod and the Ten Commandments and other items It was uh, that were housed inside of that box. And then also in the Holy of Holies is the mercy seat, which was um, a which was a big uh, uh, tablet, as it were, that sat right on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it is where the blood was applied on the day of atonement. And so a very quick overview of the furniture in the tabernacle and then later moved to the temple when the temple was constructed. <clears throat> Thirdly. The significance of the missing piece. Now you think about a building, you think about a house, you think about any kind of a dwelling place for people. And there is one particular piece of furniture that is always present. It doesn't matter if you're talking about your home, you're talking about a, a church or an office building, or you're talking about a sports arena or any, anyway, what would that piece of furniture be? Would you guess? A chair. A lot of you said a chair. That is exactly right. The missing piece of furniture, at least I think it's missing, uh, is a chair. A chair is arguably the most basic piece of furniture in any and every occupied building. Now, you think, well, uh, it doesn't have a bed. Well, lots of buildings don't have beds. A bed is not uh, the only. They say it, uh, uh, it has a table. That's a very occupied. It has a light source. That's certainly something that's done all the time. It has a, a water source. It, it's got the, uh, um, the uh, golden, the, the, uh, the brazen laver. But yet a chair is the most common item of furniture in an occupied building, no matter what it is, uh, what kind of building is yet a chair is conspicuously absent in all three of those houses, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and then Zerubbabel's temple. Why is that? If you'll turn to the book of Hebrews, and this is the meat of the message, and I'll close in five to 20 minutes depending upon how much of a glory fit I have, because I have loved this study this week. And really, I've been musing on it for some time. We see in Hebrews chapter 10 that a man's work is never done. <laughs> you all have always heard a woman's work is never done. Well, in this case, when it comes to the tabernacle, the temple, a man's work is never done. Look at Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 and then verse 11. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And verse 11, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, 
that it, it was just it was just shadowy. It wasn't the real thing and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make those who come to it perfect. It can't be done. It's not going to be complete for them ever. It will never satisfy in the nth, to the nth degree. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, um, if it could, then, um, then uh, uh, they would have ceased to be offered, but they weren't ceased. Because the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more consciousness of sins. If it did the job in totality, then it would have been over with and it would not have continued. They would not have any longer been uh, pricked in their hearts about the need for atonement. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance. In other words, every time the day of atonement came along, it said, we need God's covering. There's going to come a day, but it's not yet when God will provide himself a lamb. There comes a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Well, then what were they doing? They were having their sins covered. That's what atonement means. It covered the sin. It covered the penalty. And so God could look over that and tell the ultimate sacrifice we made. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering often the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And so why is it that they didn't have a chair? Because they didn't have any, any, any business sitting down. They were continually offering sacrifices. To sit down would, to say, would be um, to say that the job is done. To sit down would, would be saying that um, God is satisfied with all of this. Yet in the work of the tabernacle and of the temple, the, those who ministered there, if they were doing so um, it, with a proper heart, they recognized my work is never going to be done because I can't make atonement uh, to the degree that it needs to be. I can't eradicate sin. I can't pay the penalty. The best I can do is participate in the covering of the sin, the covering of the penalty. And in fact, that's what they did. And so a chair would have been utterly out of place because they were not yet at a point of rest. And there wasn't any time for rest because they had to continually offer a sacrifice for an atonement. It's very significant that the chair was not included. Secondly, we see if a man's work is never, man, is never done, the man's work a uh, definite article there is completely done. Amen. <laughs> and I tell you, that's what the thrill is for me. Look at Hebrews 10, say in the same chapter, pick up with verse five. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. In other words, you're not wanting the temple sacrifices to continue, but a body hast thou prepared me. Why? So that he could identify with fallen man, so that he could be tempted in all points, yet like as we are, yet without sin, so that he could be the perfect substitute. A body hast thou prepared me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. Thou hast had no pleasure. It's not ever met the, it's never measured up. It hasn't done the job. <clears throat> then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin. Thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure in them, which are offered by the law. Then said uh, he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second by which will 
we are sanctified, that is, we're made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so his work, when it was completely done, um, that, uh, that's why he said, it is finished. No longer does there need to be anything added. Now, verse 12 through 14 is really uh, uh, the significance of the chair. But this man, talking about the Lord Jesus, young people, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, that is, the sins are paid for forever. You don't need to get forgiven again if you're born again. It's done. After he had done that, he sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them who are sanctified. Hallelujah. The Lord Jesus offered himself and when his work was finished, he sat down. Folks, the only one eligible to sit down, the only one who can sit down when it comes to the sacrificial system is the one who has finished the job. And there's only been one who had done that. And he did it back then, and it's still done, and it doesn't need to be uh, re-offered or, uh, or, um, or, or re-enacted or uh, what, what our, our friends from other religions and all would want us to, to somehow believe that, uh, well, uh, you still need to be forgiven and, and you still need to um, confess and have somebody forgive you and there still needs to be uh, some, uh, a fresh new uh, crucifixion uh, every time uh, a, a service is, uh, is uh, uh, is held or something along that line. This text says that he completely finished the task. And how long is he going to remain seated until he returns and his enemies become his footstool until he crushes the Satan until he uh, casts him into a lake of fire until all the, um, the enemies of the Lord are bound until then he is seated on his throne in heavenly places. One day he will be ruling and reigning physically. His work is completely done. The missing piece of furniture in the tabernacle in the temple is the chair because there was only one person who had the right to sit down on the chair on the throne. And that's the one, the very one we celebrate this evening. The Lord Jesus in what he did in uh, removing the penalty and the debt for sin and has forgiven us and uh, sanctified us, made us holy in uh, the eyes of God. It's an amazing thing. Um, the just for the unjust. He was just and the justifier at the very same time. He was sinless yet became sin for us so that we might have as a trade as a substitution, the righteousness of God clothing us. What amazing love that we have received in hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, of continuous. How many animal sacrifices were made? How many carcasses were burnt on the bronze altar? How many ceremonial washings did the priests go through? How many days of atonement were there? Those only happened once, uh, once a year. Yet, all of that added up together, at the very best, only hid the sin from the eyes of God. He allowed it to be covered until he would one day eradicate it, remove it, completely take it and cast it into the sea as far as the east is from the west. And you stand after all the smoke is cleared, after all the dust is settled, you stand justified. <laughs> Woo! 
boy, that'll, that will just, uh, that'll, that'll put a shout in your heart. Amen. And he did it. Uh, the missing piece, the chair. Boy, I'm so glad the chair was missing. It said the work had to go on until it was ultimately met in him. Lord, I'm thankful for this 